Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Um, as we start, how about we, we take a few moments? Uh, we don't do this a whole lot, so we'll try it. Um, why don't we just, uh, wherever you're at, uh, let's take a few moments and just respond to even just the songs that we sang, uh, to the Apostles' Creed, to the gospel that we believe. Um, why are you excited about the gospel? Sh- just shout out one or two words. What makes you just excited, full of joy about the gospel? Salvation, Jesus is the way. Hope, forgiveness, freedom. Acceptance, yeah. Security. God wants to talk to us. I think you said something too. Love, yeah. For everyone. Truth, yeah. Eternal life. What was that? Adoption, yeah, love that. Peace, forgiveness, grace, salvation, security. Man, all my ears are amazing. I can hear you guys. I'm actually hearing like most. I'm like, my wife, my wife says I'm deaf all the time, but, you know, I, I can hear you. I mean, some of you, I'm like, ah, you know, I'll just make up a word. and That's cool. Our gospel is good, isn't it? The gospel that God has given us, it is good, worthy. Our God is worthy of praise. And so, I mean, today, what we're, we're really just unpacking part of the gospel today. So we're in Hebrews. If you're new, here's your like 10-second summary. Um, the church is struggling. They're suffering. They've been persecuted. You go, to ch- you go to the end of chapter 10, you'll read they've been arrested. They've, been, uh, they've had their possessions taken from them. They've been mocked. And so they're going, is this what we signed up for? Is this, are we supposed, is this supposed to happen? Are we going to keep believing in Jesus, or should we go back to Judaism or, or something else? And so the, the author or pastor of this book is just writing to this church and encouraging them. He's reminding them the truths of the gospel. That's really the whole book. It's really the whole book. And so he's just writing to them about the gospel, encouraging them to remain in the faith, to continue on. And so that's what we're going to do. And so I pray that as we look at this text, that you'd be encouraged today. I pray that it would bring comfort to you. I pray that you would feel energized and full of zeal for God and desire to live as he calls us because of this text. And that our hearts would be overflowing with joy. And so uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read. And then we're, we're going to pray and, and get started. So if you don't mind, stand. And we're going to read the Bible together. We're going to do just a few verses. Um, verses 10 through 13. It says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Let's pray. Father, Father, I just thank you for your word. 
I thank you for the gospel that you have given us and that you are good and holy and perfect and righteous and gracious and just. And the gospel exhibits all of your glory and character. And so, Father, I pray as we, as we look at the gospel, we'll be full of praise to you. As we look at the gospel, we'll be full of thankfulness for what you have done for us. I pray that we were reminded of what you have done for us today. Our hearts would be bursting with joy. And if our hearts are hurting right now, I pray they'd be made well. So Lord, be with us today. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Originally, I was going to preach uh, the rest of the chapter today, 10 through 18. Um, uh, but that would have been hard. I don't think I could have done that in an hour um, or, or whatever time we have. And so we decided to break it up. And, and this one, was, this was a hard text. This first half was hard. It's got some Old Testament passages in, which, which we'll get to kind of towards the end. Um, but there is there's some incredible, incredible truth here. And, and what I want to do is I want to start by just look back at chapter 2, verse 1. Let, let's just make sure we, we understand how this chapter started. Chapter 2, verse 1, the author says, We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away. So what he's saying is the church is struggling. They're beginning to drift. And so he says, guys, in order to correct this drift problem, we need to pay really close attention to what we have heard. So the thing that we heard is the answer, the solution to the drift. So that only begs the question, what they hear, right? Like, we need to know what that is so we also don't drift. And when you go to chapter 2, verse 3, he tells us. He says it's such a great salvation. And then, and then the rest of the chapter, which we looked at some of it last week, we'll look at some today, and then when we finish the rest of the chapter, he's just unpacking the gospel, this, what he calls this great salvation. And so that's what we're doing today, and, and verse 10 is very important, and it has a couple words in it that I think we're just going to need to define in order to kind of wrap our heads around it, make sure we're on the same page and understanding what the author is saying. First word that we just need to understand is the word founder, that Jesus is the founder of our salvation. That word, if you don't have an ESV, it could be translated source, pioneer, trailblazer, those are other option uh, words that have been used. I think pioneer or trailblazer is helpful. You're thinking of someone who cuts a trail for others. No one has gone here. No one can go here. So the, the pioneer, the trailblazer is going to come and cut this trail so then he can bring others to follow him. And so, so Jesus, another way is the way is the way of salvation, or as John 14, 6 says, Jesus, is the, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's really what he means here. Jesus is the founder. He's, he's cut the path. He's the only way we come to salvation. But I think it means more than just that. Because if he's cutting the path, he's showing us where we must go. He's showing what it looks like to go down this road. And so he's also our example. And so when we look at Jesus and, and what we'll see throughout this context is that the gospel is about suffering. 
Jesus suffered so that he would then be exalted and save us. So one day we also would be exalted with him. But the path to the crown is, is suffering. And so, and like in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, the, Peter says, For to this you have been called. So he says, Church, this is the reason you've been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his footsteps. Peter's wanting the church to know, as look, suffering Suffering's not to be some abnormal thing. It's not a strange thing with the church. Jesus actually called us to suffer. He suffered. And so now we suffer, and that's all a means of displaying the glory of God and the worth of the gospel. And so when we think founder, think he's our trailblazer. He's the only way we get to God, and he also shows us the way we live. Second word is the word perfect. Many people have, have stumbled on this word because of kind of the way we bring definitions often into the Bible. Um, so is he saying that Jesus needed to improve himself morally? Was Jesus not perfect? Are there degrees to perfection? Um, no, this has nothing to do with morality. And we know that because elsewhere in the book, in the book of Hebrews, the author will tell us that Jesus is sinless. Like in chapter 4, verse 15, he will say, For we do not have a high priest who is, able, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. And then he says, yet without sin. So he's really, I mean, he's done everything we have done. He's been tempted in every way, but he, unlike us, he never sinned. Chapter 7, verse 26 he will say this, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, referring to Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And then he'll go in and say, you know, all the priests from Levi, they all had to make a sacrifice for themselves because they're sinful, and then they would make a sacrifice for the people. So two sacrifices. But he goes on to say, Jesus made one sacrifice because he didn't have to make one for himself. He is absolutely perfect. The whole argument of Hebrews, which really centers around the priesthood of Jesus, is based upon the sinless perfection of Jesus. So we know that he's not talking about degrees of perfection or that Jesus came and he had to somehow be improved. So rather than thinking of moral improvement, think qualified when you hear the word perfect. You see, Jesus, if we're going to have if Jesus is going to come and stand in our place, he must be human like we are. He must share in the flesh. And so Jesus comes, and he was perfected through suffering. So his suffering reveals his humanity. It shows that he really is like us. Like he's not like Superman. Remember like Superman, like he gets shot, but he's not really hurt. And so, but he acted like he did. If you remember that first Superman, like the first one... Uh, who played Superman there? It was Christopher Reeves. Yeah, that's it. And he falls down. He gets back. He's like, oh. He gets back up. And he tells Lois, I fainted. Um, but he never really gets hurt by anything, right? So he had to pretend. But Jesus actually did suffer. He actually did die, proving that he actually is in the flesh. He's like us, and yet he never sinned. So he went through all the temptations, all the sufferings, things that we go through, yet he never sinned. So he is 
fully qualified. Not only is the, the Son of God, but He's Jesus Christ in the flesh who is able to stand in our place. So when He's been made perfect through suffering, He's been qualified through His suffering to be able to stand in your place and my place. So those are a couple of words. So when we think founder, think our trailblazer and our example. When you hear the word perfect, think qualified to be able to stand in our place. So here's the question, though. And I think this is really the question that, that the author is answering throughout this, this section. Why was it necessary for Jesus to come in the flesh and suffer? Like, why that way? I mean, think about it. The church... Living in Rome, where they crucify people, they're being mocked for worshiping a crucified Messiah. I mean, humility, suffering, Savior, those words don't go together in the first century. They don't go together in the 21st century, really, either. In fact, you ever try to explain the gospel to your kids? You try to get that? And you're walking them through, and you're like, okay, so Jesus came, and he's like you and I, and he died, and he took our sins, and then he rose again. Do you ever like just think what that sounds like to them in your head when you're telling that to them? Are they tracking with this? Are they, are they getting this? Does this sound strange? I mean, there's some things in the Bible that just as we're communicating them, I have to admit, I feel like sounds strange. And I'm like, did I say that right? How do I help my kids wrap their heads around that more? I think we all have to wrestle, why is it that Jesus came in the flesh? Is there, is there a reason behind this? I mean, is this ludicrous? Should we really be worshiping a Savior who comes and suffers and dies? And so that's what he's, that's what he's unpacking. And so we're going to give, he's going to give two reasons in the text that we have today to show why it was necessary for Jesus to come in the flesh and die. And then we'll give some more reasons when we come back and finish chapter 2. Uh, first reading. First reason comes from verse 10, it was fitting. If you notice, those are the first words in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So what does it mean it is fitting? It means the incarnation and suffering of Jesus is fitting with the very character of God. It aligns with the character of God. Which might ask us, might beg the question, how does the suffering of Jesus Christ and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ align with the character of God? And so we could spend a great deal of time here, uh, but let's just unpack just a little bit. Think through the wisdom of God. When we come to the Bible, we see that we have a problem. We are born sinful, thus meaning we are rebellious to God. We do not naturally want to follow God's will. We don't naturally want to bend down on our knees and worship him. We want to worship ourselves. We want to do the things that we want to do. And because of that, the Bible says that we are full of sin. And because we're born in sin, and all that we do is sinful, and we have a sinful nature, and Ephesians 2 will say we are spiritually dead, meaning there is nothing we can do in and of ourselves to please God, then this means that we are unable to fix this problem. It's kind of like a person covered in dirt and filth. Can they make themselves clean? Like if they're covered in dirt, can they wipe themselves clean? No, they're just wiping more dirt upon themselves. 
And so for you and I to stand before God and try to fix ourselves, that's an impossibility. And so if our, if our problem, our sin problem is going to be addressed, it must be addressed by God. So God is going to have to be the one to provide the solution. So for one, Jesus coming is in accord with God's wisdom. It's him providing the solution for our sin. Number two, it accords with God's faithfulness. Remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15? So in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they sin, and God comes into the garden, and he, he kind of hands out the punishments, and he tells them what's going to happen, and they're going to be removed from the garden, but he tells them, one day, a seed from the woman will come, and you remember what it will do? It will what? It will crush the head of the, of the serpent, which we actually will get to at the end of chapter 2 even. Talks about how Jesus comes at the cross, he destroys the devil. And so one day, so we know that there is going to be hope that comes. We know that one day a person will come. And so all throughout the Bible, you know when we go through those genealogies, those really fun parts of the Bible that were like, yes, genealogy time, like what? Numbers starts out with like 11 chapters or 10 chapters of genealogies. Favorite part, right? Or no, that's, I think that's Chronicles. Numbers starts out with like, the ordering of the tribes and all that kind of stuff. Those are hard passages, right? Those are hard. None, we don't really set those up for the memory verses. Um, if you do, you're just a sick person. Like, I, we can't even say those names, right? Um, that's right, just real quick. If you ever read those passages in front of people, you just read them with confidence. Nobody knows. Nobody knows how to say them. Um, but what we're doing is we're, 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 tracing, we're tracing genealogies. Where does the seed of the woman come from? It comes from Adam. It comes from Abraham. It comes from Isaac. It comes from Jacob. It comes from the line of Judah. It comes from David. We're tracing genealogies. We're looking, where's the serpent crusher coming? And all of a sudden, in comes the Gospels, thus proving the faithfulness of God, sending the one who comes from the woman, not the man. Remember, we hit the virgin birth yes, last week, the importance of the virgin birth. We never compromise on the virgin birth because Jesus comes of a different line, not from Adam. And we'll, we'll recap on that in a few moments. But the whole Bible is about the faithfulness of God, saying, I will redeem humanity. And it will be through a man, through Jesus Christ. It also accords with God's justice. God doesn't wipe our sins under the rug. We are guilty before God. And we're told that our sins must be dealt with. If a murderer stood before a judge and he was condemned guilty, and the judge just leaned over the, the table and said, okay, just don't do it again. Now you can go. Like we would cry out violence and outrage, wouldn't we? Like there was no way that would be just. We'd kick the judge off the bench. And so God, in his perfection, cannot simply wipe our sins under the rug. He must be able to justify us somehow. Somehow our sins must be paid for. And if you and I are guilty, then lambs and goats and bulls are not a proper substitute. We have to have a person. And so in Romans chapter 3, we read this. Jesus, whom God put forward as the propitiation. Remember what that word means? Wrath absorber. So God puts forward Jesus as the wrath absorber 
by his blood, meaning through his death, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance had passed over former sins. That's all the Old Testament. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Jesus comes and he dies. You ever wonder how the Old Testament saints were were saved? It was only because God had planned that a day in the future, Jesus would come and die on the cross and pay for their sins, and thus God is justified in saving the Old Testament saints and justified in saving you and I because the sins have been paid for in Jesus. If Jesus doesn't pay, God's not just, and we can't be justified. That's Romans 3, 25 and 26. Also, it reveals that God is full of wrath. We all like to jump to John 4, 1 John 4, where we love God is love. But guess what? God is full of wrath also. He hates that which goes against his will, which goes against his glory and his holiness. And we read in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. There is a punishment. The cross is that punishment where Jesus comes and takes your curse and my curse and he takes it upon himself so that we could then have the peace of God. But it does. It also accords with the grace of God. When you read through God's word, we should just be astounded by God's grace. I encourage you just when you read through, read through the Old Testament, read through the New Testament, just look at how God continually pours out his grace on his people I mean, for one, he created us in his image. He didn't need to create us, and he certainly didn't need to make us in his image. And then when we sin, he saves us, unlike the angels, which later in chapter 2, verse 16, he'll say, God didn't save the angels when they sinned, but by grace he saves us. And when Noah and the flood happens, Noah is saved by grace, not because he earned it, And when we come to Abraham, we read in Joshua chapter 4 or 8 or somewhere in Joshua that Abraham used to be an idol worshiper, so he did not deserve to be saved, but God chooses Abraham and saves him by grace. And then when you read the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, none of us are going, these are saints. We read, man, these guys are kind of some messed up people, and yet God gives grace over. And then when you get to the story of Israel, it's just grace everywhere because they grumble, 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 grumble. All the time. And God gives grace and 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 gives grace. And then we come to the New Testament where we see the perfect picture of grace that Jesus comes and saves us by his death. So Ephesians 2.8 would say, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Nowhere in the Bible does man ever achieve God's favor. Nowhere. And the only place that we think that could have happened would have been in the, in the garden with Adam and Eve. Made perfect. If you keep the law, they probably would have been moved into some state of perfection. They couldn't, in their sinless state, obtain perfection apart from the grace of God. And neither will we either. So the entire Bible just highlights the grace of God. If we're going to be saved, it must be by grace. And then, of course, it also aligns with God's love. 1 John 4 says this, in this the love of God was made manifest among us. So he's basically saying, do you want to know how God revealed his love? 
He sent his only son into the world so that we might have love through him. And then just to make sure we understand it, verse 10 he says, in this is love. So he says, verse 9, you want to know how God revealed his love? And he says, Jesus came and died for us. And then verse 10, this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The way God most clearly has shown his love is by sending his son to die on the cross for us. And do not think that the father says, I'll show my love and forces his son down here. And Jesus begrudgingly comes and takes the cross. Have you ever heard that? Have people say that? Just take them to Hebrews 12. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Despising the shame is now seated at the right hand of the glory of God. Isn't that good news? Jesus didn't come. Take the cross. Dad's making me. He comes in with joy. Out of love for God, out of love for you and I. Augustine said the cross was Jesus' pulpit in which he preached the love of God to the world. John Murray said, this truth elevates us to the summit of amazement. He writes, what love for men that the Father should execute upon his own Son the full toil of holy wrath so that we would never taste it. Isn't that good news? So the first thing, I mean, we just see, why is it that the Son would come in the flesh and die? It's fitting with the character of God. It's fitting with the character of God. In fact, the most clear demonstration of the very glory of God is at the cross of Jesus Christ in the Bible. And so this is why the author comes to this church who's wrestling with their faith, who's saying, should we really be worshiping a crucified Messiah? And he puts his arms around them and says, yes. Do you not remember the Bible? Do you not remember the storyline of the Bible and how God has revealed himself? This is fitting with our God. Yes, the world will mock it. The world will reject it. The world will deny it. But oh, for those who have had their eyes tasted, this aligns with the very character of God. So that's reason number one. Reason number two, it brings many sons to glory. It brings many sons to glory. We read that also in verse 10. Where it says, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So what does it mean that he brings us to glory? So uh, the big answer is go back and listen to last week's sermon. I mean, that's just, but I'll I'll give you the spark note version real quick. Uh, So this is going to be the recap kind of last week's version. Um, But if you weren't here, didn't catch that, I think. I think we we just went through and unpacked it, so it's much more helpful just to listen to that. Um, In in verses, make sure I say them right, I think it's 6, 7, and 8, Hebrews 2, verses 6, 7, and 8, the author quotes Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is the exaltation of God. It's praising God for the fact that he makes everything that he owns everything, that his glory is seen in all the heavens, and that he made you and me in his image a little lower than the angels to be crowned with glory and honor, and he has subjected everything to us. So basically, David, he's writing this psalm, he's just blown in his mind, just saying, God, you're so good. I can't believe that you would make us in your image, and you 
have made us to rule creation. Made us to rule. Made us humans who have no significance really in, in all of creation, but the fact that you, by your grace, made us in your image. You made us to rule. So he's just praising God for that. But then, what we saw last week is because of the sin of the first Adam, we will never experience that glory. Remember that? We use that word. Does anyone remember the two words? Starts with F, ends in federal headship. Federal headship. Yeah, we don't use that one a whole lot, but it's good. Federal headship. What it means is that Adam represented all humanity. So what Adam does affects everyone that comes from Adam. So when Adam sinned, he plunged all of humanity into sin. Therefore, because of Adam, and we now come from the line of Adam, we will never obtain the crown. We will never obtain glory. Man was never in their power ever intended to grab onto the crown of glory in our power. What we need then is a greater Adam. What we need is a better Adam. We need someone to come. The problem is we all come from Adam. So how do you get someone that doesn't come from Adam when we all come from Adam? Well, God sends his son of a virgin. That's how we get someone not from the line of Adam. So that's why that virgin birth is so important. So Jesus comes as the second head of all humanity. So we got Adam and we have Jesus. So the question really is, when you're in like Romans and 1 Corinthians, question is, who are you in? Are you in Adam? Are you in Jesus? Are you saved? Jesus was on the set. Are you saved or not saved? And so Jesus comes proving he is human through the suffering of his death. And then being the founder of our, of our salvation, he rises from the grave so that he would take the punishment that we deserve, paying the price so that we could be saved. And in verse 9, we read that Jesus then rose and was crowned with glory and honor. So the crown and glory that, that we were supposed to have but never could have, Jesus now comes and is crowned with glory and honor. And now he says, and we read here, we have been saved to be sons of glory. What that means is Jesus saves us. So now the crown, the glory that he has, he shares with his family, with those who believe in him, with his brothers, with his sisters. The way that we experience the crown of glory is through the grace of Jesus. That's what he wants us to see. And so as, as, as the church is wrestling with their faith, how is it that we believe in this crucified Messiah? He reminds them, oh, it was fitting that Jesus would come. It aligns with the character of God. And, and he reminds them, Jesus has now obtained the crown, and you will also one day experience this. Now, the prosperity gospel will say this. Now, the prosperity gospel is a false gospel, and it will say, you should have your crown right now. It will say, you should have your best life now. They write books that say, you should have your best life now. And they will say that you should have all the clothes you want, all the land you want, the house you want, the cars you want. You should have everything you want. You should have perfect vision. You should never get sick. COVID's not a problem for you if you have enough faith. And that's what it comes down to. If you don't have all of those things, if you do get sick, if you struggle with money, the problem is faith. You just simply 
don't have enough faith, so just believe more, try harder, do more. That's the solution. So let's just say that's the real gospel. Let's say that is what the Bible says. How would that affect the message here? What would the author say? We got a church struggling with suffering, struggling with persecution. What's the answer? Well, it's certainly not coming and putting your arm around them and saying, hey, guys, remember the gospel? It's saying, well, guys, you're just not trying hard enough. You guys got to believe harder. If the prosperity gospel was the real gospel, that would radically change the message we have here. Rather than focusing on Jesus the entire time, it would be, you need to try harder. Let me give you 10 steps to grow in your faith. But we don't have that. In fact, what we do know is that Jesus comes the first time he establishes the kingdom, right? The second coming, he will bring the kingdom in its full, absolute consummation. Meaning, at that time, everyone above heaven, under heaven, and on earth, and everywhere in between, will all bow before Jesus. But right now, we live in between these comings, where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the glory of God. But his glory and his crown is not recognized by all the world. And we, while we are made heirs with Christ, while we have been given all things, we don't yet experience the fullness of it until he comes. Why? Because we follow the path of our Savior. Just as he came and lived and suffered and died, so we now live and suffer and die as a means of testifying of the gospel. Does that make sense? The prosperity gospel says you should have all of it now. And Jesus says, no, you have it now, but you'll experience it here. And faith is about trusting in the promises of God that he will give you in the future. And when you get to Hebrews 11, we'll see that faith is always forward-looking. It's always forward-looking. It's based on past grace, but always looking towards future grace. That's what Hebrews 11 will say. So the prosperity gospel wants the kingdom in its fullness, now. And it says you can do that through your own works, which is a lie and a false gospel. So, what I want to do now, though, is I just want to remind us what it is to be a son of glory. I just want us to look at a few texts on how Jesus and the New Testament just simply describes who we are. And I just want you to think, the texts I'm going to read are true of every single one of us if you believe in Jesus Christ. If you're not believing in Jesus Christ, I urge you to believe in him, and these texts are true of you then. Romans 8, 17 says this. And if children, meaning children of God, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we shall also be glorified with him. We are co-heirs with Jesus. Do you know that? That means everything Christ has, he shares with you. And if you forget what Christ has, go back to chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, where we read that Jesus made all things, owns all things, sustains all things, is crowned with glory and honor, and that's what he shares with you and I. Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, blessed the church, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Right now, you have Every spiritual blessing there is. Do you know that? Every blessing there is. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. God saved you and loved you and gives you every blessing and promises to make you holy and blameless, just like him. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You have been saved to be conformed to the very image of son uh, of the son Jesus meaning you'll be holy and perfect. You've been saved to be the brother of Christ. Isn't that crazy? He is our elder brother. We are now family in God. The book of Revelation, seven churches are being addressed. And in chapters two and three, there's seven letters, one to each of the churches, which are really given to all, to all of us today. And it, at the end of each of these letters, there's a reward. And he says, if you continue to persevere in your faith, this is what's true of you. This is the reward that you have, which is really what the author is saying. As you continue in your faith, you are sons of glory. This is what you have to look forward to. So I just, I'm just going to summarize and read through these seven blessings that are true of every single believer. He promises that we will eat the tree of life meaning we will live with God for all of eternity in the new heavens and new earth. He says you will not experience the pain of the second death. Do you know that? You know, what's the second death? There's two. The first death is, is, is if we die here before Christ comes back. Everyone suffers that unless Christ comes. The second death is the lake of fire. Those who have not believed in Christ will suffer for all of eternity in the second death. A death that will continue to kill but never fully kill you. And he says, if you've believed in Christ, you will never taste that. Why? Because Jesus absorbed that full wrath for you. You'll be given a new name. You'll be given authority and rule. You'll be clothed in white and Jesus will forever confess your name before the Father. Isn't that crazy? You. Me. So incredibly insignificant, God will confess your name before the Father. We'll be made pillars in the temple of God. What that means is we'll be permanent fixtures in the temple. What, what does the temple represent? It represents the presence of God. So he's basically saying you will forever live in the very presence of God. His glory will be upon you forever. And the last one, this is the one written to Laodicea, which it's just like the icing on the cake, and I, I, it's just crazy. We will sit on the throne with the Son as he sits on the throne with the Father. Do you get what throne that is? That's a big throne. And he brings you and I to sit on that throne. That's what happens because Jesus, never going to happen in Adam, never will happen in Adam, only happens because Christ came. So he turns to the church. You're sons of glory. How can, how can you run from the faith? You're sons of glory. Do you not remember the promises that God has given you? Isn't that good news? This is what's true of every single one of us. This is what one commentator said. I want you to think about this. He said, you are not foremost a white person or a black person, or a brown person, but you're a new creature in the new humanity created by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
That is, that is why it is the Christian community that is best able to transcend the barriers of human existence. For we are one in Christ and no longer what we were before. Surely each of us will have associations that serve to define us in this life. Race, economic class, occupation, place of origin. But our union with Christ transcends all of these. In him we find our hearts more closely knit with other believers regardless of fleshly differences than we do with old friends from home. Isn't that good? That's why this right here is closer than any relationship you can have with an unbeliever, no matter even if they're blood. The relationship we have here transcends all of those earthly positions and things that we have because we have been made one in Christ, that we are brothers and sisters together. Christ is our elder brother, and the Father is our Father. And so when we come here, it's not like that crazy, you know, south, southern, you know, family reunion where just everyone's all related and all, but it is a rejoicing, wonderful beautiful family reunion in the family of God every week that we come together. Every week. That's the beauty that we share as sons of glory. The church is not just a gathering of people, but we're redeemed people. We are his children, and every time we gather, that's why I said earlier, this is a foretaste of that heavenly feast we'll have. Right here. That's why we ought to just love the gathering time. That's why in Hebrews 10, it'll say, never forsake the gathering of the believers. All right, so um, we got to keep going. There's more. Uh, so he's, he wants us to know that we're family. Jesus is our elder brother. He uses that. He says that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. He calls us brothers in verse 12. Verse 10, verse, or verse 11, verse 12, um, verse 13, we are called the children of God. So he's wanting us to know that we are now a part of God's family. In fact, the word congregation in verse 12 is ecclesia, which means we are the church here. That is who he is referring to. And so what I want to do here is then just give us three truths that we need to know what it is to be a part of God's family. And that's where we get into the latter part of these Old Testament verses that are quoted. Um, three things we need to know, though. Number one, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. We see that in verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call us brothers. When it says we're one source, meaning we're of the same family. We come from God the Father. He's not saying... That we're all one source. Jesus is one with all of humanity. He's specifically talking about the church and the relationship the church has with Jesus. That's why he says we have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call us brothers. He's not saying Jesus is one with all humanity. He's one with the church. Does that make sense? He only calls the church brothers. And the word brothers can be interpreted brothers and sisters. So it is there signifying the whole family of God. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother. Now think about the church. What are they going through? They're suffering. They're struggling. What's a question that could be going through their head right now? Maybe 
Maybe we're struggling. Maybe we're suffering. Have we disobeyed God? Does he hate us? Has he rejected us? Is he punishing us? Is this his wrath coming upon us? Is he ashamed of us? Does he want nothing to do with us? Does our suffering stain the name of Jesus? I think that's, that's pretty understandable if they get there. I think we wrestle with that at times. Have you ever struggled with that? You're going through something and you begin to wrestle with, am I, am I going through this because God doesn't love me? Or maybe, maybe God doesn't want anything to do with me because I'm going through these things. Maybe, maybe God would be ashamed to have me in his family. Or maybe you've heard that lie whispered in your ear before. You don't belong with the rest of these people. Have you ever thought that? You're just the outsider. You should really leave. You don't fit. And that's just a straight from the lie of hell. Because what we have here, this church is struggling and suffering. Jesus says, oh, I'm not ashamed at all to call you my brother. I'm not ashamed that you're my sister. Oh, I love you so much. Never think that when you love Christ and you experience suffering and persecution because of it, that Jesus is cringing because of it. If you remember, Jesus was standing when Stephen was martyred next to the Father. No, oh, he loves us. So whatever you're going through, I encourage you. Now, there will be consequences for sin, right? If you do something stupid, there's going to be things that happen. Hebrews 12 is going to talk about how the Father disciplines us like fathers discipline their children, so he will discipline, but you will never have wrath poured out upon you if you're a child of God. Why? Because Jesus absorbed that. Remember the word propitiation? We say it a lot because he absorbed the wrath of God. So you'll never experience the wrath. But he will bring discipline if we've done things or to grow us in our faith. But he's never ashamed of us when we follow him. Number two, Jesus praises God in the midst of the church. And I'm going to change that slightly to Jesus proclaims the goodness of God to the church. So these are two Old Testament texts. Uh, the first one comes, verse 12 from Psalm 22, then verses, verse 13 uh, quotes two passages from Isaiah 8. Um, there's a lot we can say about these, a lot. Uh, psalm 22 is this amazing psalm where the first 21 verses are all about just the pain and suffering of the psalmist. And they're all pointing to the life of Christ. In fact, the psalm starts out with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you remember when Jesus said that at the cross? Then it goes on in, in, it, in verse 14 of Psalm 22. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and my clothing. They cast lots. Psalm 22, all about pointing to the suffering of Jesus Christ at the cross. 21 verses of pure pain. And then verse 22. Verse 22, it's the change in the psalm from lament to praise. And he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And the rest of the psalm, he praises God for the victory God has given him. He praises God that he's been present with him in suffering. And so now Jesus, notice it's no longer David writing, but it says, 
I, referring to Jesus, is now saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. What he's saying is that Jesus, when we gather, when we read the gospel, when we preach the word, when we sing praises to his name, Jesus is with us proclaiming the goodness of the Father to us. In the midst of chaos, in the midst of the cross, in the midst of evil, in the midst of persecution, Jesus is with us proclaiming the cross to his brothers, proclaiming the goodness of God to his brothers. Then Isaiah. Isaiah takes place in um, chapter 8. Assyria is about to come and destroy the southern kingdom. And so he says, I will put my trust in God. I'll put my trust in God. And then God has given him children, and these children are a testimony that God will keep a remnant together. And so Isaiah basically, he, he puts his hands on his children and says, I will stand here with my children, and we will trust in you. And he says, behold, I and the children God has given me. And now we're being told that ultimately Jesus is the one who says that, who gathers with us places his arms around the children of God, his brothers, and says, together we will hope in God. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of evil, in the midst of persecution. The whole point is that Jesus is with us in our suffering. He's not ashamed. He's proclaiming the character of God. He's proclaiming the the presence of God. And he stands here testifying, there is a day coming when Christ will return. And all of this will come to an end. That's what he wants us to know. So that's the message here. Where Jesus, is, or the psalmist, or the, the author of Hebrews, is wanting us to know. Jesus came in the flesh. It was fitting with the character of God. And it's meant to bring you to glory. And we will experience suffering here. Oh, but we do not need to waver in our faith. Because God is good. Jesus is not ashamed. He's with us. He stands with us. And he testifies that day is coming. He will return. So I pray you know that. And I pray you know the blessings that God gives you for being a child of glory today. We're going to pray and we're going to take communion. Father, Father, we just thank you that, that you have saved us Nothing because of our own merit, nothing because of our own goodness, nothing because we deserve it, but you have simply saved us by grace. And you are just in doing so because your son has come and stood in our place. And I pray that we just, we continue to grow in our thankfulness of the gospel. We grow in our joy and praise for what you have done for us. And I pray we would know the reward that you have given us in Jesus and that we long for the day that your son returns. And that until that day comes, we can stand boldly in our faith, unwavering, because your son is with us, proclaiming your goodness, strengthening us, and testifying that you are good, and a day is coming when he will return. May we know those truths. In your name, Jesus, amen.